Jonah chapter 2. Tonight, the praying prophet. How do you account for the fact that the one area in your Christian experience in which you are constantly shot down in flame is your prayer life? There's not a person in this room who needs an exhortation to pray. Jesus Christ said men ought always to pray and never to throw in the towel. The Apostle Paul said pray without ceasing, that is, without interruption. The pattern is clear, but the problem persists. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the product of an accident. This is the product of cultivation. There is nothing that Satan would not do to keep you from praying. See, he doesn't mind if you share your faith, just so you don't pray. Because he knows if you do not, that it is far more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. Satan doesn't mind if you study the Bible. I'm convinced he's delighted just so you don't pray. Because he knows if you do not, that knowledge puffs up. And there's nothing more effective in neutralizing an individual than seeing to it that that person is shot through with spiritual pride. Satan doesn't mind if you become compulsively and neurotically active down at the local church just so you don't pray. Because then you will be deceived. You will think you are really pulling it off. When all the time he knows you are not accomplishing a thing. Though you may be very active. Tonight we want to study a man at prayer. There are some instructive insights in Jonah chapter 2. You want to learn how to pray? I'll give you a guaranteed manner. Study the prayers of the Bible. Don't listen to older Christians pray. You will simply learn the cliches and the lingo and the jargon. But if you are willing to saturate your heart and mind with the prayers of the Bible, you will become instructed by the Spirit in the art of powerful praying. Now once again, let's get an overview of the chapter. Jonah chapter 2 breaks open into three closely related parts. In verse 1, we have the setting. And in verse 
10, we have the sequel. And in verses 2 through 9, you have the substance of the prayer. In verse 1, the setting, that which produces the prayer. In verse 10, the sequel, that which the prayer produces. And in between, you have the component parts of significant biblical praying. There are three. First of all, there is confession in verses 2 through 6a. Secondly, there is praise in the latter half of verse 6 through verse 8. Finally, in verse 9, you have repentance. Are these the characteristics of your prayer life? Confession, praise, and repentance. Now, we've looked at the forest. Let's examine the trees. I want to focus your attention upon the setting, which is given in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, from the stomach of the fish. Verse 1 provides the answers to two important questions. It answers the question when and the question where. Let's take them up in reverse order. Where did this prayer... Prayer take place. The text tells us it was from the stomach of the fish. What a strange location for a prayer meeting. Not really. You can pray anywhere. Now, this statement raises some crucial questions that I'd like to ask and answer, three of them specifically. Number one, could such a thing as this happen? Is there a fish large enough to swallow a man? A few years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of ministering with the navigators in Norway. Our host invited us to go to the Oslo Whaling Museum, where we made a fascinating, crusty character, a captain of a whaling fleet for 47 years. He was now the curator of this museum and an internationally known authority on whales. When I was introduced to him, I said, I'm sure you have been asked this question hundreds of times, but since this is your area of expertise, I would like to know, from your judgment, is it possible for a man to be swallowed by a fish, a whale, for example? He said, absolutely. The problem 
is not the size of the fish, but the size of the throat. He said, you need to learn to distinguish between two species of whale. One, the blue whale that infests our waters here in the north, which is massive in size, its mouth so large, he said, it could contain all of the Dallas Cowboy football team at one time. But he said, its throat is so small that it can only swallow one herring at a time. And as it swims along, it will take in a whole school of herring and then take a half an hour to digest them one by one. But he said in the southern waters, and particularly in the Mediterranean, we have what we call a sperm whale, which is equally as large in size, but it has an expandable throat. He said on one occasion we cut open one of these whales and found a skeleton of a shark 16 foot long, completely intact. Many times, he said, we have measured lumps of food eight feet in diameter. Now, I don't know how big Jonah was. <laughs> he may have been a portly prophet. But I seriously question if he was eight feet in diameter. There is a second question that I would like to ask and answer, and that is, could a man survive? A number of years ago, I wrote to the Encyclopedia Britannica Research Division, and they mailed to me a fascinating paper which documented several cases of individuals who had been swallowed by a whale and had survived. Now, obviously, it would be under circumstances of great discomfort, but as the paper points out, plenty of air to breathe, temperature would be uncomfortable but not fatal, about 104 to 106 degrees Fahrenheit, just a nice Kansas summer day. The gastric juices would probably produce a coloration of skin but would not digest this living form or else they would disintegrate the lining of the stomach. And then the paper made this interesting statement. The greatest problem is not can a whale sustain life. Most of the victims died of a heart attack. That's got to be the understatement of this generation. <laughs> so to laugh at this event as scientifically impossible is to be unappraised of the facts. But in my judgment, there is a much more important question. The real question is not, is there a big enough fish? And a big enough fish with a big enough throat to swallow a man, and could he survive? 
The major question is, is there a big enough God? For you see, my friends, the size of your God determines the size of your faith. And when God says it, the believing heart accepts it. I can remember a young man, as a young man in college, the critics were then hung up on the Hittites. It was obvious that the scriptures made an historical boo-boo. For there were no such individuals. All scholars are agreed, such as the Hittites. And then a few years after that, they dug up an entire civilization featuring the Hittites. In fact, one of my students is fast becoming the leading authority in the world on the Hittite civilization as a professor at the University of Chicago who writes extensively and publishes constantly about every phase of the Hittite civilization and there is not an intelligent scholar in the world who is not fully appraised that what the Bible said about the Hittites is exactly what they have discovered. But of course now we move on to another area. So even when I cannot understand, I believe. You know, it's fun teaching in seminary. We have a ball. We get students educated beyond their intelligence. <laughs> we get embroiled in a discussion, and you know, what path, how would you explain that? So we go through the explanation. So, well, you didn't explain it. Well, that's the best I can do. You mean you can't explain it any better than that? No. You're a seminary professor. How come you're teaching in a seminary if you can't explain it any better than that? I don't know. Maybe that's why they don't pay me more. <laughs> and then I jar him with this. Does it really bother you that I, as a finite individual, cannot fully comprehend an infinite God? Does that really wipe you out? See, my friend, that would bother me more. Because if I knew as much as God did, then I do not need him. Now, let's look at the when, because this is fascinating and highly instructive. Notice this chapter begins with a then, which forces us back to verse 17, where we're told he's incarcerated in this fish three days and three nights. And furthermore, verse 2 tells us he described it as distress. I called out of my distress. Mark it well. Jonah was desperate. He was hopeless. There was no other way to look but up. No other person to whom to turn. But to God. My friend, do you know why God frequently allows you not simply to hit the bottom, but to break clean throat? <laughs> I'll tell you, to get your attention. C.S. Lewis said it so graphically. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us 
in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And that's why God allows problems and difficulties and hassles to come into your life. To get your attention. Let's suppose that I were able to guarantee you tonight that for the next 365 days, you can be certain you will not have one problem, one need, one difficulty. How much do you plan to trust God in the next 365 days? Don't look so pious. You know the answer just as well as I do. Not at all. I'll see you in 365 days, Lord. That's why God has the most fantastic ways of making you dependent. You noticed it? One of my favorite stories from the Gospels. The evening when the disciples were out on the water and they saw what to them was a horrible sight. They were scared to death, paralyzed with fear. And all of a sudden they said, Lord, is it you? Right. Peter, in characteristic fashion, says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. Come. (laughs) And I suppose the most difficult thing he ever did was let hold... Let go of the gunnels of that boat. And here he is starting to walk out in the water, and old Philip and Andrew are watching their buddy. Hey, man, look at that. (laughs) Wow, look at him go. And all of a sudden, old Andrew says, Hey, Peter, watch that wave. And old Peter looks over and boom. He disappears into a manhole. And he prayed a prayer. Lord, save me. That is a desperate prayer. (laughs) See, he couldn't leave out one word and get the same result. (laughs) Now, if Peter had prayed like a lot of ministers on Sunday morning, (laughs) who scraped the Milky Way and review their theology and take their tour of the mission field... See, he'd have been 12 feet under. (laughs) And I am convinced there are many times the Lord allows us to go through an experience just like this. To drive us to our Lord. See, James put it this way. Count it all joy when you fall so as to be completely surrounded with all varieties of testing. See how strange. That's strange, supernatural. And please note he says when, not if. See, this isn't an elective. This is a required course. And by the way, if you don't have any problems, be patient. They're on their way. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. 
Anybody here doesn't need patience? You have a thoroughly adequate supply on every circumstance? Anybody here who doesn't want patience? Oh, no, we all want the product, but not the process. And James says you cannot get that product without this process. And God is a master in structuring the curriculum of your life. You see, prayer to most of us is like a parachute. It's an emergency item. And if the emergency arises, then you can pull the ripcord of prayer and it'll bail you out. For instance, let's suppose we were having a social time here at the Glen. Just a lot of good fun and fellowship. And I walked in and said, hey, friends, could we stop for a moment of prayer? All over the place you'd hear people say, well, what's the matter? Well, what happened? Who died? Do we have an accident? A few years ago, we had a drought in Texas, I think one of the most severe we have had. And a number of people wrote in to the editor of the Dallas Morning News proposing a day of prayer for rain. <laughs> I wish you could have seen the letters that came into the editor. I've saved them. They're classic. One guy wrote in a day of prayer. My God, have we come to that? And I thought the only difference between that guy and the average guy in the pew is he's got the brass to write it down. Because this is our attitude toward prayer. Let's suppose that one of our doctor friends who are here in the conference told you that they had absolute medical certainty after examination that you were dying of terminal cancer. And you had a best Three months to live. What would you do? Well, I suspect that most of you would make your way to Jim Morris and say, Hey, Jim, I wonder if we could have some prayer for my physical need. Don't pray that the Lord will take the cancer away if God wants me to have it. You know, I'm, I'm willing. But pray to God will give me grace in these next three months, not to deny him and to give a good witness for the Savior before I go home. And there's no person in this room who wouldn't identify with that. But men and women, your spiritual needs in the next 24 hours are far greater than your needs for terminal cancer, should you have it. Did you ask anybody to pray for you today? See, the problem is the physical is so much with us that we're very conscious of that, but not near conscious enough that the fact that our need is not partial, it's total. And the biblical pattern is clear. You better learn to find your way to the Lord in the light so you know how to find Him when the darkness comes. You ever come into that house of yours at night? Can't reach a light. Open a back door. Walk through the whole house, threading your way between furniture without bumping into a piece, unless your wife has chosen to rearrange the furniture. <laughs> Why couldn't you do that? It's obvious. You've been exposed to the furniture in the light. Therefore, you can make your way through it 
in the darkness. Now, let's look at the substance of the prayer in verses 2 through 9, and let's enroll in Jonah's school of prayer. First of all, I want you to note his confession. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me, so that I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. He remembered what was said at the dedication of Solomon's temple, that when your children are far off, And they are in distress. They are to look to the temple, to the place where the Shekinah glory dwelt. And they are to pray in faith believing. Water encompassed me to the very soul. Notice what he felt. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head like a turban. Maybe the fish had an afternoon snack. I descended to the roots of the mountains. You can see him as the fish plunges. The earth with its bars was around me forever. It was like a prison. Now, please mark this well. Jonah does not confess the sins of someone else. Many times we become self-appointed fruit inspectors. Spend all of our time going around lifting up people's leaves, looking at their fruit. We're delighted to confess sin. Someone else's. We're just like my children. They used to love to confess the sins of their brothers and sisters. Your kids do that? And please note also, he gets very honest, very realistic, and very specific. Someone has called this the first John 1, 9 of the Old Testament. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. The word confess means to say the same thing. It means to be in agreement that you agree with God that you have sinned. And God promises to forgive that. You know, it's amazing how easy it is to develop an unforgiving spirit. My wife and I were ministering in Africa a few years ago. The head of the mission where we were serving said, Dr. Hendricks, would you spend some time with some of our missionaries and counseling. We've got some very sticky problems and we need some help and feel that perhaps someone from the outside could give an objective point of view. And so I was delighted to spend several days in a counseling ministry. But I'll never forget a lady who walked into my office, her face billboarded her bitterness, her teeth were set, and before I ever opened my mouth to greet her, she said, and I hope you're not going to try to talk me out of it. And then she unloaded the truck. And she told me about another woman missionary who had offended her 
about seven or eight years ago. And all during that time, she was carrying an unforgiving spirit. And she said, I absolutely refuse to forgive that woman until she repents of her sin. And I said, Madam, I've got news for you from the Word of God. You are living in far greater sin. Because the Word of God makes it transparent, it is your responsibility to take the initiative. See, whether you have been wrong or whether you have wronged someone else, the Scripture is clear. You are responsible for taking the initiative. About three weeks later, they sent her home. After 27 years of missionary service, and she's wandering around the United States somewhere, stewing in her juice, covered over with her bitterness. Ladies and gentlemen, may I say very categorically to you, there is nothing that will cripple and shrivel your soul like an unforgiving spirit. And there is nothing that God loves more than to have His children come in faith believing that what He said is exactly what He will do. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Now look at verse 3. Because this is the most instructive verse in the prayer. For thou hast cast me into the deep. Now just a minute. Jonah? Why back in verse 15 of chapter 1 I read, So they, the sailors, picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. How do you account for the fact that you believe God did it when the sailors did it? Jonah says, upon reflection, it's very obvious that the sailors were simply instruments in God's hands to accomplish His purpose. Have you ever learned that? Have you ever become sensitive to the fact that you are related to a sovereign God who will use a variety of people and instruments to get His message across to you? You better be listening. My senior year in seminary, I was on a collision course. I was the finest candidate for somebody's psychopathic ward you have ever seen. They were just about ready to back up the wagon and the boys with the white coats come out and take me away. Frothing at the mouth. So I went to see a medical friend of mine and he said, Howie, I know this may strike you as strange, but uh, there's a guy at the clinic right around the corner from the seminary, a psychiatrist. I, I, why don't you go see him? Oh, you know, I need a psychiatrist like I need a hole in the head. Well, that's all right. I'm paying for it. You need a hole in your head. Go see him. So I went to see this guy. I'll never forget that experience in all my life. A gray-haired guy who's smoking a pipe. And he listened to me as I unraveled my story. And by the time I finally got through, he looked me straight in the eye and said, Son, you know what your problem is? You got an inordinate view of your ministry. And I want you to go home tonight and let the world go to hell. In fact, I want you to know that some of us are planning to go to hell no matter what you do with it. 
came on, I came on. And I stormed out of the guy's office hotter than a hornet. I was saying Dr. Chafer's home, the president of our seminary, very graciously provided it for my wife and our little baby. And I went in to see him in a study, and I told him what this guy said. And I can still remember that little smile breaking out on his face as he said, Ali, I think God was speaking to you. <laughs> God? Through a pagan psychiatrist? Yeah, he said he used a donkey, too. <laughs> that experience changed the whole course of my life in ministry. I was ministering in Cleveland some time ago. The conclusion of a session, a lovely couple came forward and introduced me to their neighbors, another couple. I happen to be talking on this matter of penetrating into your community with the gospel, building friendships, winning a hearing. And so this lady said to me, you know, it's amazing how God had to break through to my husband and me to get the picture. I said, really, how did it happen? Well, she said, our next door neighbor came over one day and said, hey, how come you always spend all of your time up at the church? I thought everybody up there was saved and everybody out here was lost. How come you spend all of your time up there with them and so little of your time with us? Are you ashamed of us? Are we too obnoxious for you? The lady said, man, I was underneath the rug. <laughs> and then she turned and said, I'd like you to meet my neighbor and her husband, both of whom told me how they came to Christ. You know how God broke through to a smug Christian couple who were all wrapped up with themselves, a delightful pagan next door who came over to tell them the truth that God really tells you about if you are listening. But sometimes it's got to come through a different source, through a different package. You see, one of the great themes of this book is the sovereignty of God that he uses a variety of means to accomplish his purpose. You better be sensitive to what he might like to use to break through to you down there at that office where most of those people do not know the name of Jesus Christ. In verses 6b through 8, we find a needed note. That's the note of praise. But thou, notice the repetition, but thou hast brought me life from the pit. O Lord my God, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee in thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. I want to give you an assignment tonight. I want you to go back to your room tonight or as soon as you have opportunity and I want you to get down on your knees and pray for five minutes without asking God for anything. You ready? Oh, sure, great. Well, do that. So you go down and you go on your knees. You run out of gas and look at your watch. Two minutes. You see, because most of us are like old McDonald's wife. With the gimme, gimme here and here, gimme there, gimme everywhere, gimme, gimme. 
And if you don't believe it, try it. It'll strain your brain to talk to God without asking Him for something. Just get occupied with Him. Who He is. What He's doing. It's what I call the therapy of thanksgiving. By the way, the next time you're down in the mouth, try that out. Just start praising God. I used to have a major problem with depression. My wife can tell you all of the lurid details. I used to come home from preaching at the Glen or out at Crusade or on some university campus where people were coming to Christ like it was out, going out of style, tremendous ministry of the Word. I'd come home and crash and burn. Gene say, well, hon, let's read the Word. No, I don't want to read the Word. <laughs> well, let's pray. No, I don't want to pray. <laughs> And then one of my kids would crawl up next to me and say, Hey, Dad, read us the Word. And let's thank the Lord. And we'd start thanking Him for all that He did. And man, depression takes off out the window. Try it. You'll like it. (laughs) Well, look at verse 9. Here's His repentance. And I want you to know there are three strands to his repentance. Now, I don't want to read into the scriptures, and I certainly don't want to distort the interpretation. But it is my judgment, studying this passage of scripture, that after each of these three statements, you have a pause. Here's a man repenting, but I will sacrifice to thee. And nothing happens. With a voice of thanksgiving. No response. That which I have vowed, I will pay. And it's still silent. And then he says, salvation is from the Lord, and that springs the trap. Spurgeon has a delightful section on this. He said, Jonah was a Calvinist, and the fish was an Arminian. And the moment he said salvation is of the Lord, the fish couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) Do you ever define repentance? We talk a lot about it. You better understand what it means. Repentance means to change your mind and behavior. It's a word that demands a 180 degree turn. You are moving down the road in this direction and when you repent, you turn in the exact opposite direction. That's what happened to Jonah. God told him to go to Nineveh. He went in the opposite direction. Until in that fish, He cried, salvation is of the Lord. He repented and moved in the opposite direction. He knew the mercy of God. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. But he needed to learn the sovereignty of God, that God could choose to save those whom he would, including the Ninevites. Well, what's the sequel? Verse 10, then, the same word with which the chapter opens. Then the Lord commanded the fish, 
and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. How considerate. <laughs> Back where he started. Oh, the grace of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever learned, I mean by your experience, the power of prayer? You know how I got into discipleship with my students? I had a group of about eight guys who cornered me one day and said, Prof, we want to spend some time with you. We don't care if it's a course. We don't care if we get any credit. We just want to spend some time with you. We want to be discipled by you. I said, well, you know, man, I'm very busy. And they said, look, Prof, you taught us that if you're too busy for people, you're busier than God intended you to be. You know, nothing like having your own messages crammed down your throat. <laughs> I said, I know, man, but, you know, I got a heavy load and all. Well, Prof, pray about it. All right, I'll pray about it. So I forgot about it. <laughs> they said, Prof, are you praying about it? I said, no, as a matter of fact, I'm not. Well, Prof, how in the world can you find the will of God if you're not willing to pray about it? So I said, okay, I'll pray about it, but I better tell you what you get in. If you come into this, I'm going to rot your socks. I'm going to give you an assignment so it'll stretch you to the breaking point. And I want you to give me some jazz. You got a Greek exam or something else. You couldn't show up. So maybe you better pray about it. All right, we'll pray about it. So they prayed about it and we got started. We made a covenant, eight guys plus myself, that we would pray for each other every single day without fail. We each came up with a list of three requests. And in one semester, four months, we saw 37 people trust Christ by prayer alone, including my father. That was the semester he found the Savior. You know what God taught me? Where prayer focuses, power falls. And there isn't a man or a woman or a young person in this room who begins to understand the power of prayer. But you've got to pray in faith believing. Turn over to one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Turn over to the book of the Acts. Acts chapter 12. Here's a little prayer meeting in the first century church. You think it was a perfect church? Take a look at this one. Verse 2. And they had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Verse 3. They proceeded to arrest Peter also. So they killed James, and they arrest Peter, and he put him in prison, verse 4. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was made fervently by the church to God. So God answers their prayer, and he delivers Peter from prison. Now look at verse 12. And when he, Peter, realized this, that is, that he was outside of the prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. For what? For Peter. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice... 
because of her joy, she didn't open the gate. But she ran and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. You get the picture? You know, this little gal runs, opens the latch of the thing, and sees Peter. Good night. It's Peter. And she's so excited, she forgets to open the door, and she runs out. Hey, Peter's out there. And they all stood to sing the hallelujah chorus. <laughs> Notice that in your text? Verse 15, they said, woman, you're out of your mind. But she had kept insisting that it was so. Nothing like a persistent woman. And they kept saying, it is his angel. <laughs> That's got to be a seminary student's explanation if I ever heard one. <laughs> My friend, they weren't praying for his angel to be delivered. They were praying for Peter to be delivered. But fortunately, their answer to prayer kept knocking at the door. <laughs> Peter continued knocking, and if I know Peter, man, I bet he was about to break that door down. Open the door! <laughs> and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. What a translation. You know what the Greek says? They were knocked out. Peter, now wait a minute before you laugh too hard. Suppose at the end of this session, I got you over in the corner and said, Hey, man, I got some fantastic news for you. You know what you've been praying about for many years? Oh, yeah, man, we pray about that every day. I just prayed about it this morning. Well, Lord answered your prayer. What would you say? Oh, come on. You're putting me on. you got to be kidding. How do I know? That's exactly what happened to me. I told you, I prayed for 42 years for my father. Let me tell you how he came to Christ. I told the story of my father on a tape. And there was a pastor who picked this tape up as he was about to get on a plane in Detroit. And an university man on the staff said, Hey, here's the tape. You ought to listen to it. It's a message on prayer. So the guy came home, listened to the tape. And when I told the story of my father, this guy got so burdened for my father, he covenanted to pray for my father every day. It was just like his father, who had come to Christ just before he died. I had a pastor's conference in Philadelphia, and this pastor came. This is the first and only time I met him. Let's face it, that's all the exposure he needed. So he only saw me once, told me he was praying for my father, went back to Washington when he was driving the church bus down a street in Arlington, Virginia, saw this guy on the corner and said, man, that guy looks like Hendrix. So he goes around the block, gets off the bus and says to my father, are you Howard Hendrix's father? And my father just about went through the concrete. He said, are you one of my son's students? He said, well, not really, but he has ministered greatly to me, and I just love to know you. So they built a friendship. My father was a military man, North Africa campaign, up into Italy, Korea, Inchon invasion, the whole shot. So he had stories coming out of his ears. And this old pastor would listen by the hour to my father as he'd tell him another story of... How we pull it off with Patton. <laughs> and one night, sitting in his apartment, he said, Mr. Hendricks, I've really enjoyed listening to your stories. 
But I wonder if I could tell you just one story. He said, why, certainly, young man. And he told my father the story of the gospel, which I had told him many times before. And my father knelt down by that couch and accepted Christ as the Savior. And when he got up, my father saluted him and said, Sir, I just want you to know I'm under a new commanding officer. And so Butch Hardman, the pastor, went back to his home and called me on the phone about 11 o'clock in Dallas. And he said, Hey, Allie, what are you doing? I said, Nothing, just reading. He said, Are you sitting down? I said, Yeah, why? He said, Your father just trusted Christ. And in typical evangelical fashion, I said, You gotta be kidding. <laughs> And you know the reason you're laughing? Because that's exactly what you've said. James says we have not because we ask not. And we ask and receive not because we ask it amiss. That we may consume it upon our own lusts. Let's go to school tonight. And learn to pray with our confession for our own sins and to ask God's forgiveness and to praise God, just to fill your mind with who He is and what He's doing. And then to repent, to make some decisions here at the Glen that some of you have been putting off perhaps for years, decisions that could determine your destiny. And if you don't know the Savior, man, you couldn't have a finer environment in which to trust Him and come to faith. And for the most of you who know the Savior already, what an opportunity to make some decisions that will bring about some distinctive changes in your life, in your ministry. Let's pray. Father, these are exciting days in which we are met together in the Savior's name. How we thank you for the aliveness of your word, that it probes and penetrates deep in the heart and mind and there produces fruit. Thank you that the word of God is able to meet our individual needs so varied in a group this size so many different levels of spiritual maturity, so many personal needs, perhaps shared by no one else. And yet, our Father, you're able. You're able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all we ask or even think, according to the power that dwells within us. Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Make us men and women who know how to pray. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen.